From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Have you ever thought about being a researcher? The steps needed to stay engaged in research and the drive necessary to be successful? On today's episode, join us as we talk to the Faculty Director of Education at Harvard Catalyst, Dr. Elliot Antman. Learn about what led him to research, what keeps him engaged, and his work in leading the education program at Harvard Catalyst. Dr. Antman is Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, a senior investigator in the Timmy Study Group, and a senior physician in the cardiovascular division of the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Hi, Dr. Antman. Welcome to the show. We're excited to talk to you today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. We have so many questions we could ask you, and today we want to focus on the history and kind of the path that led you to research and your work leading the education program at Harvard Catalyst. So I'm going to jump in. We're curious to get to know you. Um, When did your interest in medicine and research begin? It's a a great question. Uh, Like many individuals, uh, events occurred when I was younger that uh, sparked my interest in medicine and research. And they were the uh, unfortunate uh, deaths of some individuals who I just felt very close to, an uncle or my grandfather, and they happened to have died of a cardiovascular-related event. And I just simply wanted to know more about why this happened to them and was there anything that could be done to prevent this or delay uh, an event like that from occurring? When I was in high school and college, uh, my science classes were of great interest to me. And I felt that they were, they were putting me on a path to begin to get answers to some of the questions that I had had since I was a teenager. Uh, an interesting uh, event occurred when I was at Columbia College. Uh, there was a program that was available at the College of Physicians and Surgeons, which is Columbia University's medical school, they had a program available for individuals who had decided they were very interested in medicine and they could apply after three years of college. Uh, And I took advantage of that program. And fortunately, I was accepted to the medical school. So I actually never graduated from college. Uh, And I went to medical school after three years of college. And in medical school, I found myself uh, really uh, simply enthralled with all the physiology and in particular with pharmacology. And when I uh, was a fourth year medical student, now we're fast forwarding a couple of years from since I started medical school, uh, I took a research elective uh, in the laboratory of the chairman of the Department of Pharmacology at the medical school. And that got me interested in research. Now that happened to be uh, large uh, animal research. Uh, when I said large, it, it was dogs. It wasn't so mm. uh, uh, petri dishes or anything like that, but it was experimental heart attacks uh, in dogs. And I was studying drugs to stabilize the heart rhythm. 
so this was beginning to converge for me uh, in a career path that I was very, very inspired to follow and was very excited about. Thank you so much for all that background. So we've gotten to the point where you're interested in cardiology and you're doing a little bit of research, but what are some of the driving factors that kept you interested in research over the years? Uh, another really uh, good question. Uh, I did my training in cardiology, my cardiovascular fellowship, at what was then called the Peter Ben Brigham Hospital from 1977 to 1980. And then I joined the faculty at the Brigham, uh, now called the Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I became the director of the coronary care unit, the cardiac intensive care unit. And as I took care of patients uh, in the CCU, I just had so many questions as to uh, how we could be improving the treatment for those patients. It was around this time that my, my mentor, Dr. Eugene Brownwald, formed a uh, clinical research group called the Timmy Study Group. And that was a wonderful environment for me. I had questions that I saw in the CCU that I had when I was taking care of patients in the CCU. And I could walk out of the CCU and step into the research environment uh, in the Timmy study group and begin to uh, formulate plans for how we could get answers to those questions in clinical studies in the Timmy group. We had biostatisticians that we were working with, research coordinators, research nurses. And Dr. Brownwell was really ahead of his time in thinking of this multi-center approach to uh, clinical research. And I got involved in it very, very early on probably around 1984. Can you tell us a little bit about the Timmy study? I know you've mentioned it a few times and some people may know, but could you give us some background on, on what the Timmy study is? Sure, the, the uh, Timmy study group is what is referred to as an academic research organization or ARO. There aren't that many of them around the world uh, and they are uh, dedicated uh, teams of investigators involved in clinical research, uh, asking a variety of questions. And the funding for this research could come from a variety of sources, uh, the NIH uh, or industry. Uh, and the Timmy study group has had funding from, from both of those uh, major sources. Okay. And we do uh, clinical trials, uh, clinical trials everywhere along the spectrum from phase one through uh, phase four, uh, and, and I've been involved in every single one of those. The team uh, coordinates the conduct of the clinical trials by uh, having a database of institutions where there are like-minded individuals who can help enroll patients. And this was both nationally and now internationally and we've done over 70 clinical trials over 40 years worth of existence. Mm -hmm. And I have been involved in many of those. And for me, uh, one of the most exciting aspects of this was that as a consequence of the research we were doing in the Timmy study group, many new uh, products were getting approved by the FDA. I was personally involved in four uh, studies that led to FDA approval. One of these was a, a biomarker assay for cardiac-specific troponins. And this was done through the 510K pathway for medical devices. And then there were three drug studies that I did, pharmacology studies that I did, 
One expanded the indications for a, an anticoagulant uh, called a low molecular weight heparin. And then there were two new drugs that had not yet been approved for clinical use in the United States. And I was the principal investigator on those two clinical trials, which were international multi-center trials. And these were two new drugs that got approved uh, for uh, the management of patients with clotting disorders that were affecting uh, their heart. Wow, that is incredible. Um, can I ask you a little bit about your patients and, and kind of generally, I have had the pleasure of going on service with you or seeing you on service and was just struck by um, how attentive you are to your patients and how thoughtful you are in their care and kind of the teams that you lead as you go in and out of rooms. How do you think about that while you do clinical trials and that being the care of an individual? So this is um, something that I, I feel very passionate about. Uh, the patient-centeredness of what we do is so important. Mm -hmm. And we, we've heard this from many, many uh, uh, individuals, but I, I really feel it's important to you know, live that, that, that mission, if you like, um, mm -hmm. when you interact with patients. So I, I think of it from several different directions. One is, if, if I was a patient or a patient's family, uh, what would I want to know? Uh, and so the questions that I ask from a research perspective are, how can we answer questions that might be in the minds of patients or their family members right now? Conducting that research needs to be done in a humane and ethically bounded uh, fashion. And so again, from a patient perspective, thinking about what's fair when asking a research question, what's fair to ask of the patient. Applying the science and really using every bit of understanding of all the physiology we, we studied and learned uh, is, is fascinating to me. And trying to convey to the patient not only the fact of what they should do, but why it's important to do that. And that, to me, is a very important aspect of the interaction with a patient, not just simply telling them what to do, but explaining the rationale for your choice of your recommendation. And that helps a lot because it really improves the likelihood that the patient will comply with the recommendation. Hi, Think Research listeners. We're taking a brief break from the podcast to let you know that Harvard Catalyst offers e-learning opportunities in many different topics, including grant writing, biostatistics, mixed methods research, and more. Right now, we are accepting applications for the Transforming Care with Emerging Novel Devices, Transcend hybrid course that will take place in April and May of 2022. Transcend explores the current climate for the development of Class II and Class III medical devices. To learn more about our offerings, please visit catalyst.harvard.edu train. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of today's episode. I could talk to you all day about your work as a cardiologist, as a physician, as a researcher, and we are going to transition here and talk about your leadership of the postgraduate education program at Harvard Catalyst, um, which I'm lucky to be a part of. And um, what led you to this role? What interested you in education in this space? Uh, we've been talking about how I was inspired all the way along in my uh, 
educational development and career development uh, path uh, to to pursue my passion and to ask the questions and to learn more about how to do research. When I was growing up, if you like, through that process, through that pathway, there were many things that I had to just simply seek out in order to learn more about them. There was no well-defined instructional pathway or supportive educational resource environment. And I realized that if I had not had the passion to seek those things out on my own, I might not have actually learned what I learned, might have dropped off in terms of my um, my interest level. So I, I feel an inspiration to actually train the next generation of our biomedical workforce so that they don't have to seek things out as much, but it's there available as a training pathway uh, for them. Uh, I also feel that we have an obligation to learn how we can do things better in training that next generation of the biomedical research workforce. And Abby, you and I have had many conversations mm-hmm. about how can we improve the way we deliver our educational uh, resources. And this is a work in progress. We're finding mm-hmm. different ways to deliver uh, the information. Uh, and I'm sure that different types of learners will uh, find delivery methods uh, that suit their needs that are different from some of their colleagues who may learn by a different uh, method. And you've been very, very attuned to that, very helpful in identifying things that we should be uh, experimenting with. And experimenting is an interesting word there because very often people just assume they have the answer to the best way to deliver uh, educational material. And I hope that we can think more about what we call A-B testing. We're going to compare method A versus method B and decide whether A is better than B or B is better than A and then for whom. And that's an important aspect of our continued work in our educational program. That's a great point, especially about education generally, right? We all are different types of learners. Um, And I loved how you ended that with which version is best for whom, right? Because some A may be great for one population and B may be fantastic for a different population. Yes. Um, So we need all of them. We need both. Um, Wow, there's so many questions I could ask you. I have your time. (laughs) Um, What are some of your favorite parts of working with the education program? It's an absolute joy for me to be working with the education program for for several reasons. Uh, We have a number of extremely passionate individuals who are very dedicated to just what we've been talking about, trying to provide a rich learning environment and educational environment to help do that training for the next generation of the biomedical research workforce. And I love working with every single one of those individuals. They Each one brings uh, a different uh, aspect to it, all of which are very, very valuable. I actually feel that developing new programs are new approaches to biostatistics teaching or omics, uh, for example, are are very important to me. Our mentoring programs, our writing and communication center, developing all these new programs, many of which have been suggestions that bubbled up from the individuals who work in our postgraduate education program. That to me is a particularly exciting aspect of the job. It's different every time we talk and that's what's so exciting about it. Perfect. 
For all the aspiring researchers listening to the podcast today, what advice would you give them about getting involved in research and having a fulfilling career? I'm glad you asked that because uh, many individuals who are trained uh, in clinical medicine, which is how people often get started uh, in medicine, need to realize that uh, doing clinical research requires a commitment, a commitment of time. You have to put aside the time to learn the basics. And if I were to say there are three important aspects that are listed as the basics, one is research design. Many times research projects are undertaken without a clear understanding of the advantages and disadvantages of particular research designs. And the second would be a grounding in statistical approaches to analysis of research findings. Now, it doesn't have to be very, very complicated and sophisticated statistical analyses, but understanding the basics of a statistical approach are very, very important. And having the third, and perhaps one of the most important here, is to understand that whatever we're doing has to be grounded in an ethical uh, fashion. We need to understand the ethics of human investigation. Uh, that's, that's so important. If one commits the time and sticks with it and stays uh, grounded and learns those basics uh, and starts small, pick yeah. a small project and grow with it, you will be rewarded over time. Uh, there's a phrase that's often used, delayed gratification. Uh, and that's very apt here because you really do need to commit the time and become more and more experienced over time. Uh, for me, uh, I ran the coronary care unit for 29 years, and that was a wonderful opportunity to keep asking those questions. And for clinical research, I've been doing it now for over 40 years. If you commit the time and learn the basics and uh, progress through this process, you will be greatly rewarded by a very rich and inspiring opportunity. Thank you so much, Elliot. Um, it's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you, um, and we hope to have you back soon again. Uh, thank you very much. I hope it's been helpful to people who are listening. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.